let me thank you one more time for uh, your generosity in uh, helping to send me to Brazil. Uh, I leave Friday morning and uh, will be gone for 10 days. Uh, we, we have lots of missionaries that are going to be coming to, to a retreat center in uh, Atibaia, Brazil, which is uh, kind of a, a, a community. It's, it's a, a planned community uh, not far from Sao Paulo. It's about a 45-minute drive, maybe an hour drive from uh, uh, the, the main airport in Sao Paulo. And uh, those, those men are going to be traveling from 11 different nations, not just uh, those of us from the United States are traveling a long distance, but there's a lot of these fellows that are going to be traveling from, from different countries as well to Brazil. And I would ask that you not only pray for me and the, the 14 other guys that are part of the care team that's going down on Friday and the, the, the counseling, the teaching, the, uh, the interaction with the guys, the encouragement that we hope that they get, the, the helping them to resolve some issues in their life and in their family life and in their church life. But we pray that you would, um, but we pray for them as well. And we ask that, that God uh, make them very, very receptive to, to the kinds of things that, uh, that we'd like to do this week to help them uh, uh, recharge and to get some rest and to be encouraged and to be ready at the end of uh, their time together at Achabaya at the retreat center, that they'd be ready to go back and to, to jump into their work again uh, feeling uh, whole and feeling encouraged and, and feeling excited about what they're doing for, for the kingdom once again. Uh, Barry is going to be preaching in my, in my absence, and I'm really thankful that we have a, a fellow like Barry that that is not only a scholar, but is su just such an able communicator of God's Word. And I know that you'll be praying for him as well because uh, we're loading up on him uh, for the, the couple of weeks that I'm going to be gone. Not only does he have his normal duties, but he's going to have some preaching duties as well. And so we want to be praying for Barry as well. Uh, tonight we want to be uh, looking in part at this text from 1 John chapter 4 that Michael just read for us. But we're, we're going to be tackling uh, a question, an objection that we find to Christianity. And that is, and really not just to Christianity, but any of the major religions of the world. And that is uh, the ex uh, exclusive nature uh, of Christianity in, in the main. So let's begin with a word of prayer and then we're going to jump into this text. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to be together tonight at the end of this, this, this day that we have dedicated to worshiping you and to pressing our mind not only into your word, but reflecting upon the greatness of your presence in our life. And there are so many things that we're grateful for. We're so thankful, Father, that you've loved us and blessed us and cared for us and your patience. When we think about your patience with us and how you continually work to to bring us into conformity with the image of Jesus, where our minds are just boggled by it, Father, for your patience is, is great like, like the depth of the ocean. Uh, we're thankful for the compassion that you have for us and the wisdom and the way that that wisdom plays out in our life. Even before we know it, Father, you have strung and, and, and knit events and, and circumstances together, Father, for us not only to be blessed in in your presence, but also to bring glory and honor to your name. And as we study tonight, we pray as we always do in the name of Jesus for eyes that see and ears that hear. We pray it in the name of Christ with all our heart. Amen. There is uh, a lot of objection to religion in the world, not just in America, but in a lot of the Western world. And a lot of the objection to Christianity and to the, the major religions of the world is based on the problem as the world sees it of exclusivity 
And you find the objection couched in questions or statements that go like this. How can there be only one faith? It's arrogant to say that your religion is superior and then try to convert anyone else to it. That's the problem of, of, of being exclusive. Or you hear it come from a different angle, and it is the problem with the world is the exclusive claims of religion that lead to conflict and war. If Christians insist that they have the truth, and they're only ones with the truth, then the world will never know peace. Our question tonight that we want to tackle is this, are they right? Well, I think that a jumping off point for us is to define, and it's a very important jumping off point, is to define what religion really is. Some would say that religion is really just a belief in God, but if that's really the only way that you define religion, then you have to exclude a religion like Zen Buddhism, which does not believe in a God at all. Others would say that they define religion as a belief in a supernatural realm, a supernatural place that's beyond the present physical world. And again, you know, there are some parts of that that, 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 that strike true with Christianity and other religions, but it's not, it, it's not a very good definition in the sense that it would exclude Hinduism, which does not believe in this, this afterlife the way that that definition would define it, but, but believes in the spiritual realm within this world only and in this time only. I think that the most simple definition of religion would be this. Religion is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about and how to live accordingly. That religion is a set of beliefs that explain what life is all about and how to live accordingly. Now, obviously that includes more than just the larger organized religions of the world. Um, I, I think we would, uh, so, some of the different philosophies sort of act as a religion for a lot of people. One of uh, the favorite stories that I'll always remember Charles Branch telling was when he was uh, uh, in his teaching profession and, and his work at, at uh, McGill University in, in neurosurgery, uh, Julian Huxley uh, arrived on the campus. There was a, a tea that, uh, that Charles was invited to with a lot of, of other uh, educated men and academics, and, and uh, they heard Julian Huxley talk about all kinds of different things, and it kind of boiled down to, at, at one point, to him talking about evolution and stating that evolution was, was his religion. It was the thing that he put his faith in. And I think that, uh, you know, that story stands out to me because it, it does help us to see that, you know, if you're an, a secularist or a humanist or uh, uh, an evolutionist, you still treat those beliefs like a religion. That is what you're putting your faith in as a way for the world to be explained and to describe and, and to come to understanding of how the world works. Now, Atheism is a religion just as much as secularism is in terms of explaining how that world keeps turning. Now, a Christian, and, and how all of this works out as a religion is this way. Think about Christianity and how we think of human beings. Christians believe that human beings are made in the image of God. Therefore, because of the way that we see human beings made in the image of God and the high value that we placed on human beings then we will make it hard for laws to be passed that, that make abortion easy because of that high view of man based in Scripture, especially in places like Genesis and the Gospels and the New Testament. A secularist, on the other hand, believes that the ultimate pursuit of life is going to be happiness. And because that is his worldview and, in a sense, his, his religious makeup, the secularist 
pursuing happiness as the highest goal is going to make laws that make abortion easy, what they pursue. And so you can make the same application with divorce, you can make it with marriage, you can make it with homosexuality, you can make it with any number of things. But these, these different philosophies, these different worldviews, all serve and work as a religion for our, you know, for, our, uh, for our world and the people that make it up. Now, how does that become a problem? How do we get these reactions to religion? Well, if you were to ask somebody some decades ago, in fact, quite a few years ago, what the greatest threat to world peace and and why there's war in the world and all of these kinds of things, what would probably be mentioned at the very forefront would be something like politics. It's capitalism versus communism. Now, if you were to ask that same individual on the street what the problem with the world is and why there's war, crisis, all these kinds of things, they would say fundamentalist religion. It's fundamentalist religions. Religions that make exclusive claims are the culprit. Now, without traveling down this road very far, I would say, you know, you know, there are, there is some truth to that. But you have to ask the question, what is the fundamental? There are some fundamentalist religions that are not in any way to, to be connected to the kinds of crises and wars and, and disruptions you find around the world. For example, one of the most fundamentalist groups in the entire world, especially here in the United States, would be the, uh, the, 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 the Quakers. It would, it would be the Amish. In, in no way do you find these very deeply embedded, fundamentally religious people at all connected to any kind of violence. You have to ask what the fundamental is. But this is basically how it would work in the minds of these people that see fundamental, you know, very conservative religious people as the problem to strife and conflict in the world. They would say that one religion says that it has the truth. And that that truth has to be lived out on a daily basis if life is going to be lived out well and that, that whatever God they, they pray to is going to be appeased. That truth creates the sense of superiority to others who do not have that truth. That superiority creates separation between the followers of that religion and others. That separation then creates the opportunity for those that don't follow it to be caricatured and that character, uh, uh, caricaturing leads to marginalization, which leads to active oppression. We believe that we have a truth because you're not le leading a life or living a life that reflects that. Then we're going to marginalize you. And once a person becomes marginalized, in other words, then that person is oppressed. Well, people see this kind of scenario being created wherever they see what they consider to be a fundamentalist religion present, and they want to do something about it. And so what they decide is one way of dealing with it is to control religion, forbidding the practice of it. You control it in order to weaken it. Uh, they say things like, the more we have technology and the more that it evolves and the more that we understand about our universe, the less the human need for religion to explain what the, uh, what the world uh, does and how it responds and how it should be lived. Once technology evolves, then the human need for religion is going to devolve. The problem with that is that it just doesn't work. Not just Christianity, but if you look at all the ma major religions of the world, they are growing. One case study in particular is communist China. A, a century ago, they kicked out all of the missionaries, everybody for all intents and purposes, thought that Christianity was dead in communist China. The result has been that China has had an explosion 
of Christianity ever since those missionaries had been kicked out and religion went indigenous. I mean, that has not worked at all. The other way of dealing with it in the minds of of secular man is to confine religion. Go ahead and practice your religion. Just keep it to yourself. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, it's because they see each religion as only having a part of the whole truth. Just confine it. If that's what you believe, that's fine, but just keep it to yourself because your religion doesn't explain everything. How can you say that your religion has the whole truth? That's arrogant. That's why we have this problem. You just need to confine it, keep it to yourself, put it in this little personal domain over to the side. Don't bother or infect anybody else with it. My question then is, if that's true, then how do you make that claim unless you have the superior comprehensive knowledge where you claim that other religions don't have that kind of knowledge? The only way that you would know it is if you have it. So it just becomes one more narrow claim, I have the truth and you don't. Now one of the things that Michael read for us in 1 John chapter 4 are these words, You are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. So what do we do with this charge that Christianity is divisive? That Christianity, because of its exclusive claims to truth and its exclusive claim that the only way to get to God is through Jesus the Son. That there are not a bunch of ways, that there are not many ways, but there is only one way and that way is Jesus. How do we deal with that? Well, we look again deeply at the theology of Christianity. Think about the origin that is talked about in this passage. This is how you can recognize, 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come. In John's Gospel, he writes that, that God the Son came in the flesh, that he was born of a virgin, but before he became a man, he was actually someplace else. At the beginning of that gospel, the gospel of John, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All other religions are founded by a human being, not so in Christianity. Christians believe that Jesus is God. That before he became a man, before he came to the earth, he was someplace else. And that when we see Jesus, we are seeing the creator of the universe, we are seeing God, which leads to a second unique claim. And that is the purpose for his coming. Verse 2 of 1 John chapter 4 continues that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now what Christians believe is that Jesus was part of this emptying out of himself, the, the sacrificing of the divine prerogatives and privileges in order to be to take on flesh to become like we are and that incarnation is unique one of the things that you see in other religions is that they want to get away from the physical material world and yet christianity claims that jesus received a body and not only received a body in the incarnation but even after his death and resurrection Jesus received a glorified immortal resurrection body that there was a physicality to the resurrection body of Jesus he ate fish he was able to be touched which shows a continuation from the life that we know now to the life that is to come that is beyond the touch of death so origin and purpose to method. 
verse 10 of 1 John 4. This is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. All of the other religions different from Christianity are based on performance. If you execute these commands, if you do these steps, if you walk this way, if you think uh, these things and, and follow these directions, you will be saved, whatever that means. That's not true of the Christian faith. We believe that God comes in the form of Jesus who sacrificially pours Himself out and suffers for His people who don't love Him and who do not do good and who do not love the right way. That's why He dies on the cross. And that Jesus is not merely a teacher who comes to tell us how to live so that we can do it and live that way, although He does indeed do a lot of teaching in this life. That's not, that's not how we are saved. We are saved by His substitution. We are saved because He comes and takes our sin on, takes our place on the cross and dies the death that we deserve, that we deserve to die because we could not live the life that we should have lived. Jesus comes as a Savior for people who can never do life perfectly in order for them to be transformed by His grace. We make a decision in our heart that this is true. And not just a decision, but it is a confession of a truth that, that, that we have sin, that He lived a perfect life, that He is the Son of God, that He was that substitute on the cross. And, and in our faith, we are baptized, an act of faith in which our sins are washed away because we are participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And His Spirit is put into us as a gift, and we are transformed by God's work in our life. Now, right there in the middle of that first John chapter four, you have all of that love stuff. All of the all the stuff about loving people and loving God. And some would say, okay, there it is. All you have to do is just love people and not worry about the doctrine. The doctrine is where we, we mess up. The doctrine is where those ultimate truths are that are going to divide everybody. I would argue this that that's not what John is saying. John is saying that this kind of love that he describes in first John chapter four is a special kind of love. It comes from people who have been born again. That is a conversion, and who know God. That is the doctrines. I would argue that when you have these three, you understand the origin of our, of our faith in Christ, who is God, come as a man, His purpose to save us, and His method is to do it by grace, then that makes you an agent of reconciliation in the world that you have because of that spirit inside of you and the forgiveness that comes by grace. You have the blossoming of love in your life. And that you become a, a person of peace and of gentleness and kindness. As Paul would describe it in Galatians chapter 5, when in accordance with the Spirit and in agreement with the Spirit, we walk with that Spirit. And through space and time, through that kind of life, through that organic kind of botanical growth that takes place in our life because of the presence of the Spirit, we become agents of reconciliation. We are drawing people in. Not people that are just like us that we feel comfortable with, but we're drawing all kinds of people in. Different color, different race, different language, different socioeconomic makeups, different academic abilities, different in every kind of aspect that the world tries to define people and differentiate between people, we draw them in to the gospel and through that gospel to God. And, and, and instead of, of a, a religion that pushes human performance, 
that creates that slippery slope of self-righteous separatism where you look down on other people because we know we've been saved by grace, by a God who left heaven and emptied himself and died on the cross. We are humbled by that and we're modest before God at all time because we know it's not in us to do it. That it's only by God's blessing of grace and love and compassion and Jesus is in love going through with that mission on the cross, do we find ourselves pulling people in as we are drawn into God? The secularists will separate themselves from the moralists, and the moralists will separate, separate themselves from those dirty secularists, and everybody's looking down on everyone. But the gospel, my friends, the exclusive nature of the gospel that says that there's only one way to God, and it's through the Christ. And it's through that Christ and His substitution, His substitutionary death on that cross for my sins that I could never get rid of on my own and that you could never get rid of on your own in a million years. That when we think about that sacrifice, that as Bob Cunningham so eloquently and articulately talked about it this morning in our communion devotional, when we get our minds wrapped around that, we are just melted by it. Instead of being arrogant, we understand what it means for Jesus to say that the one that wants to be first will be last and the one that wants to be great will be a servant of all. We understand that it was because of His poverty that we've been made rich. That it was because of His love that we've been blessed when we deserve everything else but that. We deserve the wrath, the condemnation, the judgment, and the eternity out of the presence of God. But when we get our mind around what the gospel is all about and it transforms us and goes all the way down, what we find is not the creation of strife, but a community of people that are drawing every kind of human being made in the image of God together through the gospel. Jeff's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe you've never responded to that gospel. I'm here to tell you there's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. There's only one name given under heaven by which men may call upon the name of God and know that they're heard, and that is through Jesus of Nazareth, who came and died and was resurrected and ascended to the right hand of God. And if tonight, if tonight, you have never traveled down that road to God, then we invite you to do so tonight and to encounter the God that loves you at great cost to himself, the one master that will never enslave you, the one God who will never, never, ever let you down, the one God that will never, ever, ever disappoint you, but will love you and be providential in your life and loving in, in his character to you at all times. And if that describes you tonight, and you want to know more about how to access that grace in order to become a child of God, our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We want you to come down and talk to them as we stand and sing together.